0: Welcome to the Collective Scope Podcast, where we talk to great leaders who are influencing the next generation. Everyone, welcome back to the Collective Scope podcast. Uh, we are so excited to have with us today Larry Osborne, who's one of the pastors at North Coast Church in Vista, California, just north of San Diego. Great church, great people. Uh, been there on a few different occasions and just an incredible thing that they're doing down there. Uh, Larry is uh, a tremendous leadership developer. Uh, he's the author of several books uh, Sticky Team, Sticky Church, Sticky Leaders. Um, like a lead, like a shepherd is one of the, I think one of the newer ones that just recently, most recently came out, but, um, just an incredible opportunity we have to have a conversation with you today, Larry. So, uh, we appreciate you being on the show. So thank you for being here.
1: I'm glad I could do it.
0: Absolutely. Well, we're going to jump right in with kind of some of the questions because, um, I've heard you on a couple of different occasions and, uh, I know how much you have to share. And so we want to get to that, but, uh, you're a leader of leaders. Um, you do, mentoring of leadership, quite often leadership development. I know you guys have the North Coast uh, training sort of program there, which is which is fantastic. Um, And you're you're kind of a, a, you know, sort of a a known voice in the church world because of how much you put into into young leaders. And so how did this passion evolve for you that moment that you kind of realized, hey,
1: um, I'm passionate about young
0: leaders and raising up young leaders?
1: Well, I think it probably comes from a couple of areas. Uh, like uh, anything, we end up doing fairly well. That's part of how God wired us. Uh, and uh, I remember early on in, in uh, vocational ministry, one of the guys I was working with laughing at me and saying, Larry, you don't only like to do things. You like to do them and then show others how they can do it. So there's yeah. just kind of a built-in uh, part of me that has never enjoyed doing something alone. Uh, I've always, uh, by nature and not because of my concepts of discipleship, always like to have a little bit of, look, you can do this too. Let me show you how or, or whatever. Uh, and, and then I think God used that with, uh, for most leaders, who they become, especially if they're, they have a significant impact, excuse me, who they become is a, a, a combination of the worst things you experience, you want to prove it doesn't have to be that way, and the best things you've experienced, you want to duplicate. Uh, I see that story over and over, and it 's part of my life and one of the worst things I experienced early on in ministry is I could never get into the room or get a conversation with the people I looked up to uh, yeah. and by the time I was able to be in the room with them, I was in a green room with them and at that that point it was like dude, i don't need you anymore. uh Where were you when i I needed you? Everybody had uh uh you know three or four fake emails. Uh, five assistants. (laughs) They all said, give me a call. You gave them a call. They never answered. Uh, That kind of thing. So a lot of it was just trying uh, to provide to people what I felt just a a deep missing in my own life. And I had this sense of, Lord, if there's ever a time where pastors uh, really care about anything I think or know or do, Uh, I'm going to answer their phone calls. So my assistant knows even this day, pretty much any pastor in America that calls, texts, or emails, um, we'll get back to. Uh, I'm I'm just trying to pay forward what no one paid me. Wow. I love that.
2: I mean, I think Rob said it from the start. We are amazingly grateful that you came on our show and are taking time for uh, us Um, I think that was sort of one of the questions Rob had and Rob and I kind of wrestled out. How do we get in conversations with people who know more than we know? Um, because I think we have a passion for something and sometimes we lack the tools and need to get around people who can equip us. So when did the shift kind of happen from, from pastoring? And I think a lot of times we feel called to preach, i would not always called the lead. So when did when did that sort of shift in you go from, hey, I'm a I'm a preacher of the gospel to this discipling, mentoring kind of pastoring heart?
1: Well, I think there are are two kinds of vocational pastors out there, lead pastors, if you will. There are teachers who who lead and leaders who teach, uh, and uh, the leader who teaches uh, is the kind of person who they really care about preaching the gospel, but they understand. The best messages in the world aren't gonna grow a church and aren't necessarily gonna mm. disciple people, they'll motivate people. And mm. then preachers who, who lead, I think that learn that later. And I'm a preacher who leads. Uh, my number one identity uh, is teaching the Bible. Uh, I, in fact, I'm kind of a little disappointed that I'm, I'm more known as a leadership guru than a Bible uh, teacher because my heart is scripture. And, and frankly, that's why, you know, you, you, you Google my books, you'll find actually half of them are on, on the spiritual life and spiritual yep. formation. Things like thriving in Babylon, contrains, God, to knowing God, uh, uh, 10 dumb things, smart Christians believe, a whole series of them. But that's really what is. And at North Coast Church, uh, this would surprise people, but I'd be no- known more as a Bible teacher than a leader but what happened is we began to have some success uh, people came and asked uh, why are you doing that and i began to realize uh that i'm i would be what you call a conscious competent uh there are competent people who are unconscious competent. they do it really well and you ask them why they give you an answer that it has nothing to do with why they're successful uh, and then there's <laughs> other people who actually for whatever reasons understand what's going on behind the curtain and and, and for me that was part of the process is uh, I got a lot of kudos as a Bible teacher early on, one of my youth ministry days, uh, the early days of North Coast Church. People would come up and say incredibly kind things about the teaching, but the church wasn't growing at all. Mm. In fact, if you know the story, we grew by one person after a quick little burst uh, during my first three years. So, you know, that's stellar, third <laughs> person a year. <laughs> uh, it was at that point that I realized there, there's more to this thing Uh, Once it gets large, then just teaching the Bible. If you want to write, you want to speak on the circuit, whatever, yeah, you can just teach the Bible. Uh, But if something begins to grow large, it has organization. And uh, Mm -hmm. everything you do is either helping or hurting the cause. There is nothing neutral. Uh, And when you just let things uh, laissez-faire take care of themselves uh, in a fallen world like we have, they're not going to go in the right direction. That's why leadership is so important. I, I do this little workshop that we limit to about 25 people called Larry on leadership. And uh, at the beginning, I, I, I call it the elephant in the room. The very first thing I address is why does that even matter? Shouldn't just godliness preaching the word discipleship? Uh, I mean, that's what they had in acts. And then at that point I go, well, wait a minute. It was a non-mobile culture in which you had house churches and uh, many of the uh, people we read and look up to, uh, in antiquity as great leaders, uh, excuse me as great uh, scholars and theologians, they didn't have to lead anything. They maybe had a group of 100, 200, 300. But once you start getting two, three, four, five hundred people, there's a leadership component there that we can't run away from. and candidly it's pretty new in human history and new in Christian history because until the automobile came along, it was an incredible outlier to have a few thousand people. Uh, yep. Because people lived in neighborhoods, can, Larry, yeah. can you press into that that biblical sort of narrative? Like, so we
2: see in the Book of Acts this explosion of the church a couple times. Um, uh-huh. We see the three thousand of the day of Pentecost. We see just droves of people coming to Christ. So maybe in a comparative way, how was leadership? What we read? Because a lot of times we read the Book of Acts looking for leadership models or principles. A lot of a lot of pastors do. So, so maybe what, we, what can we extract from that as leaders and how is that shifted and how is that different now?
1: Yeah, well, what happens is I like to say we're all like fish in water. You ask a fish, how's the water? It goes, what water? Because <laughs> uh, we don't realize it. And so we tend to read the book of Acts uh, through the world experiences we have. Mm. Uh, we do it with the Gospels as well. One of my favorites <coughs> that uh, I, I, I talk about in Accidental Pharisees, is Joseph of Arimathea. For almost every modern-day pastor, uh, he's just a conjunction between the key parts of the gospel story, Uh, the death, of course he had to be buried and then raised again. Uh, But all four gospels make a big deal out of Joseph of Arimathea uh, because he was courageous and he was there when no one else was. But on top of that, they understood something we forget, that when you're crucified, you're not buried. You're thrown out on a garbage heap. Your body is eaten. So the fact that all the disciples who'd left everything to follow Jesus um, were not there, just Joseph, who had been a secret disciple because he was afraid of what he'd lose as a member of the Sanhedrin, suddenly boldly steps up. Man, they all go after that. We read it shoo, right over our heads. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing in, in the book of Acts. We see 3,000 coming the Lord, and, and we see it in our framework of almost like a revival. Well, no, there were this massive crowd for the high holy days uh, that were in Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, uh, as, at that point, they're hanging around in Penteco- for Pentecost, and, and what we call Pentecost takes place, uh, and all kinds of people get saved. But it wasn't that large group gatherings like that were not the norm. Uh, they were a very unusual thing. That's why the 5,000 that Jesus feeds is, you know, they're, they they mark that down as like that's an amazing thing. So, uh, it, I I think what we can learn from the Book of Acts is principles. What what happens is is we take a book that most of us see as descriptive, and we pick and choose what parts we want to make prescriptive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and for instance, I've done it. Most teaching pastors have. We've taught on the. We want a New Testament church, right? We say that. But whenever anybody says you want a New Testament church, I go, dude, have you read the New Testament? Yeah. <laughs> like up. I want to be a church planner like Paul. Like, really? I mean, he planted such crappy churches. He had to write all those letters. Uh, <laughs> I've never considered that. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, uh, or the, you know, the church in Acts chapter two that we preach through. We, we pick and choose. You know, oh man, they were all into the apostles' teaching and they were sharing together. They were breaking bread and they were held in awe by all the people. And my charismatic friends point out no, it says specifically because there were signs and wonders, not because they were good and had community service and missional ministry. Uh, They also met every single day. Uh, And perhaps the reason they shared uh, what they had and sold all their properties uh, was because they lived in a culture in which there were no banks. There was no Western Union. There were no credit cards. They all thought Jesus was returning right away. They were uh, in Jerusalem in a highly hospitable culture. I'm married to a Gal Armenian gal, so Middle Eastern, where I understand the priority of hospitality there. And in that culture, you just take care of the people. And he's coming back like, why not sell your stuff? No one seems to notice later on there was an offering taken for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Or that they were completely disobedient to the Great Commission. They stayed in right. the Holy huddle until uh, persecution right. is said in Acts chapter 8. And and God has to kick them out. Uh, and, and by the way, I sometimes if I'm talking to a room full of people, I like to ask how many are Gentiles? Uh, because <laughs> I point out they really didn't want any of you in their church. So so that's the kind of church you want to be? Uh, the, the book of Acts is, is not a... Uh, a prescription of how to do ministry. It's a description of the work of the Holy Spirit. Right, yeah. And what took 30 years, we read in 30 minutes, and take think take, takes overnight. Uh, and, you know, what the miracles we see, we think should be like everyday experiences, which, of course, we call that an everyday experience, not a miracle. What makes it a miracle uh, is how rare it is. So, like, one more piece on this would be um, we often look to the Book of Acts to figure out how to organize our churches, right? Yeah. And so we have our elders, and we forget they were house churches. Uh, and so, uh, and and by the way, to give a context, I'm a Bible guy, an apologetic Bible guy. I got a Bible verse for everything, even if it's out of context. <laughs> so it's like that's, that's that's where I am, and so I see the errors sometimes of my tribe and my way. And, and so what we'll do is we'll see elders and then we'll, we'll uh, try to have our church led by elders, which is fine. Uh, but we forget the elders that uh, Timothy was appointing uh, were house church elders. Groups of 25, 15, 30, maybe 50 at the most. I don't know a lot about house churches, but I do know this, they don't have a governing board. Right. So, you know, i am taking a governing board, trying to read Acts into it. Uh, one last thing on that would be Acts 6, uh, where we go back and try to figure out, do we have deacons in the New Testament way of table servers and right qualifications, etc.? But I always tell people, no, the real lesson of Acts chapter 6 is when you start to drift from fulfilling the Great Commission, you can organize any way you want. Because the reason they did that was a, 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 a battle taking place between the Hellenistic Jews, uh, widows, and uh uh, the Greek widows. So that kind of thing is going on. And and uh, now the apostles are not spending their time in the word and prayer. Uh, the Great Commission is being sidetracked uh, for passing out checks to widows. So they create a new form. And I'm sure there was some little old lady there who said, I've read every word of Jesus in rain. You <laughs> never said anything about deacons. This is not biblical she would have been right. Jesus (laughs) didn't authorize elders, didn't authorize deacons, didn't authorize church councils. They were spirit-led solutions to getting realigned with the Great Commission. And and, and Mm. so to me, when I look at the book of Acts, that's where I go with it. I go, what is it teaching me about the heart of God, not so much the methods of the first century, that's awesome. Let's switch gears just for a
0: second because I know one of your great passions and again from your books spiritual formation and discipleship you are truly a a Bible guy first and I and I and I know that about you I know that about North Coast uh, Chris Brown, different story, but we're not going to bring him up, right? So, <laughs> hey, That's you know, a great guy. Narrative
1: communicator and Bible teacher. Uh, I think.
0: I'll tell you what, and Chris Brown might be one of my next calls. I absolutely love that guy, one of the best. Um, anyway, so spiritual formation, discipleship. Um, one of the side effects of success for somebody like you, North Coast, where I was at Saddleback. Um, is people want to emulate or try to accomplish the same level of success. And I think, uh, and this is not a a chastisement of any means, at least it's not meant to be, but I think younger leaders see that success and they want to know how to get it faster. They want to know how to be in it quicker. And so uh, I think there's a gap between where they want to be and what it's actually going to take to get there. That soul care, that character, that spiritual formation piece of it. So if you could, just for a little bit, maybe talk through for some of our younger listeners, younger leaders,
1: what it actually takes to be in the chair that you're setting in. Sure, well, uh, a couple of things I already mentioned. We read the Book of Acts in 30 minutes and forget it it took 30 years. Right. Okay, Uh, there's an old saying that's absolutely true. It takes 15 years to become an overnight success uh, and, uh, everybody wants to be an avalanche. Sure. And, uh, avalanches create, uh, they're, they're rather impressive. They create a lot of damage, uh, or have a lot of power. If you want to flip it that way, knock over trees, kill people, all kinds of stuff. But you go back <laughs> four years later, you don't even know where it happened. Right. A glacier <laughs> appears to be doing nothing, but is carving out Yosemite. And I think too many of us want an avalanche ministry uh, I worked with an organization that focuses on young leaders. And about 15, 20 years ago, they were looking for the next big thing. And they found all of the people who were really hot in their ministry from the age of about 22 to 28. Uh, and they put on a conference that kind of platformed a bunch of these people who, you know, got national platforms because it was a publishing company and an organization that did it. Well, one of my warnings to them back then that over time proved to be true was you should not be doing this because at 24 to 28, we don't know who's an avalanche and who's a glacier. Uh, We don't know who is Samson having great success, but rotted inside. Uh, And we don't know where Aiken uh, has uh, kind of screwed up the temporary success of someone who when Aiken is dealt with will do quite well like Joshua did. Uh, Wait until at least early 30s. Uh, because there's an awful lot of people. I had two of my kids were distance runners. Uh, there's an lo- awful lot of people who, at the beginning of a cross country uh, race, uh, they want to be at the front uh, at the uh, hundred yard marker or mm. you know four hundred yard marker, and they're never the ones who win the race. Uh, so a, a lot of it is just uh, the call for faithfulness, and then the realization that outcomes or not are not our responsibility. Yes, that's important. Uh, one of my favorite verses is, is Proverbs, uh, where uh, it, it says, there's no counsel, no wisdom against the Lord. Uh, I believe it's uh, chapter 21, 30, and 31. Uh, could be wrong on the address, but I know who lives there. Uh, there's no wisdom, no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And we take too much credit when things go well, and we beat ourselves up too much when they don't go well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I said, Samson had 18 years of success. He was just publishing his his book on great leadership when all hell broke loose and Delilah showed up. Uh, If if God hadn't pulled back the curtain to tell us what was going on when uh, the Israelites lost to Ai with Achan taking devoted things— I know what we would do with this text. We would point out that he didn't seem to seek the Lord for a battle plan. He didn't pray enough. He presumed upon victory. He took too few people. Man, we would just rip Joshua. But fortunately, God pulls back the curtain and says, nope, there's something else. Well, a lot of times we rip on ourselves and rip on other people, and we don't know what's behind the curtain. Yeah. God is drawing straight lines with crooked sticks, and we put them forward. And sometimes really faithful people are the backside of Hebrews. 11. Yeah. You know, we love the front and we forget, well, all these other people lived in caves and drove old beat up beaters. Uh, and and God says they too were commended for their faith. So that's for me at the end of the three year dark, Nancy and I still call them dark years. Uh, when we grew by a third a person a year, uh, my youth ministry successes suddenly didn't seem to carry over to a church plant Hmm. Uh, am I a loser? All that going on. And one of the things God helped me understand was the mental math that was making me depressed was the same mental math that would have made me arrogant if we had success. Wow. I was not ready for success. Right. I, I blame myself for the defeats. I would have credited myself for the victories. Hmm. Yeah. I,
2: and I think that mental math is, is incredibly significant. um, and maybe of a greater challenge now as we see young leaders sort of self-promoting, platform building, and we're, we're both on social media and we believe in social media yeah, and the absolutely. power behind social media. But I, th- I see where that math, the the clout, as my my young people call it in my house, um, can create some mental math one way or another. Um, I wanna go back to this, this proverb you said, that the horses are prepared for battle, but the victory is the Lord. What is the best way for young leaders to prepare for battle then? If it's a long-term fight, Larry, how, what's the best course of preparation for them?
1: Well, obviously, the, the most important person, thing to do is become the person God wants us to be. Uh, but I will say this. We often try to become, I call it best practices overload. All the best traits mm. of all the best Christians. And we think that's what we do, and then God, things will magically go well. Frankly, you could be the most godly guy in the world. He was called Job at that point, and a hell breaks loose and nothing goes right. Uh, You can be a very godly person and a poor leader, and nothing will go right. Uh, So this is going to sound strange, but in our Western European-American thing, we're so individualistic that we think it all boils down to my own personal relationship with God. Right. right? Because I'm the center of the universe and 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 the truth of the matter is i'm I'm one part of his family uh, and and we have these little devotionals and all these things. If it was only you, he would have died for you. you know he, and, and all of this stuff that just turns us into the center of the universe and then creates all the angst when things don't go like they should if I'm the center of the universe. I mean we have no idea how God is using us in the bigger scope of things, right um, mm-hmm. The only reason apparently from scripture, Job went through all the hell he went through was to teach us a lesson. <laughs> if yeah. I'm Job, I'm going to no. go, could you use somebody else? <laughs> and then people yeah. go, yeah, but he got double blessing at the end. He was plenty happy with first blessing at the beginning. And, yeah. and so part of my thing to leaders is, is uh, learn to relax. You have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. Get rid of the sin in your life. Don't let the guilt gene on your shoulder overbeat you up. Because if you get into best practices overload, you know, what you're gonna try to do, you're gonna try to be a theologian writing the books like Calvin. Uh, You're gonna be getting up early every time it's a super busy day like Luther to pray a whole little extra amount. You're gonna wonder why you don't have the same evangelistic fruit Billy Graham had. You wonder want to get why you don't have the church growth that Craig Rochelle has. And, and you don't realize every one of those people had great strengths and great weaknesses. And none mm. of them had all of those things rolled into one. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I one of the things I tell people is, listen, you've got to deal with sin, you know, deal with sin, but, but this intensity in our spiritual life uh, is much more from our devotionals and our worship songs. There is anything else. Uh, hmm. Get right yeah. with the Lord. How do we know we love Him if we obey Him? How do we yeah. know we know Him if we obey Him? How do we know we're fulfilling the Great Commission? We're finding people who don't know Jesus, they follow Jesus, we baptize them, and we don't quit teaching them until they obey everything He taught. It's so much more simple than the emotive search for am I right, right with God. Um, even... Uh, Revelation chapter, uh, what is it, three, the church in Ephesus. uh, We've turned that into the church that lost its loving feeling. (laughs) Right? You lost your passion. You're not passionate enough for God. That's not what the passage says. That was a church with great passion. Uh, Jesus himself says in it, in his letter, great determination, great doctrine. You don't put up with falsehood. You, uh, when everybody else grows weary, you don't grow weary. We get on planes and go fly to see that church. But he said, you've lost this. your first. And the war, Greek word used for love there is agape. First Corinthians 13. So the thing I tell a lot of, I work with a lot of church planners is is a relax a little bit. Live in obedience. Let the Spirit work with you. Become a good man in the eyes of those who know you best, a good woman in the eyes of those who know you best. Learn how to lead and see what God does. Mm -hmm. I love that. And as you were talking, I was
0: reminded of that passage in Luke uh, chapter 10. I think it's around verse 20, where he sends out the 72 and they come back and they're all ecstatic that even the spirits obey them in his name. Right. And Jesus just looks at him and says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in that your names are written in the in the book of life, right? <laughs> Rejoice in the fact that you're a part of the kingdom. And so I think, you know, as we talk about this, this particular conversation with young leaders, that they're so focused on their giftedness and not necessarily their identity or their or their who they fully are in Christ, that they we spend so much, and I'm guilty, like I'm I'm number one guilty. Like, you know, uh, we spend so much time working on our giftedness. And our presentation and our whatever that we we spend so little time dealing with the sin and the character and the nature of who we are and living in that full freedom, knowing, and I go back to this quote, outcomes are not our responsibility. Faithfulness is. Absolutely. And I, I just I just love that. And I was as you were talking, I was thinking about that story in, in Luke and um, man do we do we like to boast about the spirits obeying us <laughs> right instead of us being a part of the kingdom so yeah,
1: I, I just think most of us again it 's our western european uh uh and American individualism right that we think is normal fish and water everybody else is that way uh, but in reality it 's very rare in human history and human cultures uh, and it's it, it it poisons us because we don 't want to play any role but a starring role mm And, uh, you know, you're not going to serve Jesus. Well, if your whole goal is to have a starring role, it's like, I'll do the best I can. And yeah, I like the fact our church is massive. That's more fun than if it was tiny, but Jesus liked me just as much when it was tiny. My wife loved me just as much. Uh, my, my kids aren't all impressed with my resume in Christian circles. They they care about what kind of dad I am. Yeah. I, I just was lucky. I had some mentors, it really helped me understand nothing to prove, no one to impress. Do your best. Take a nap.
2: Um, yeah. yeah.
1: Larry, who were who were some of those mentors
2: in your life that that spoke that into you?
1: Probably the greatest one would be my dad. My dad was a teacher and a principal. He's still uh, uh, well and, a, and, and, and doing uh, just quite well, well, along with my mom. But uh, I look up to them. Uh, they were people the world would look at and say, oh, just people. Uh, but they raised three kids who, in their own realm, became very strong and fairly successful leaders. But all share one thing in particular, and that's a deep sense of security. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew my dad loved my mom more than he loved his career. Uh, and uh, I watched my dad make decisions asking the question, what's best for our family, not what is best for, you know, me climbing the career ladder. And so that just became I just thought that's what you do. That was the house I was raised in. I played some basketball. My dad didn't love me more if I scored a lot of points or had zeros. And so like, whatever I, when I got married, I thought my job was to maximize my wife, not to have her fulfill, help me fulfill my dreams. So I'd clearly say my dad and then a guy named Wally Norling that nobody else has ever heard of. Uh, but, uh, there's a, a number of us that the world has heard of that uh, he was a, a whisperer in our lives. He's the one who taught me nothing to prove, no one to impress. Uh, he's the one who taught me, Larry, your church is using you. Uh, mm. So let them use you. That's called servant leadership. Don't be bitter about that, but they're not going to care when you're gone. Mm. 3 I've, I've been at this place a long time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Three to five years after I'm gone, They're going to want to know who's the old guy in the walker (laughs) and they're all going to be, listen to this. They're all going to be glad they're not him. So like, why am I killing myself to prove something to people? I don't even know, you know, especially out there in the social media larger world. Like this this makes no sense. Makes no Mm -hmm. sense. I'm going to serve God well. And when I'm done with my part, it's the longest running play on Broadway. He'll go next, 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 next. (laughs) I'm just a myth here today and gone tomorrow. And that is not discouraging. That is freeing. Yeah. Yeah. So on
0: that note, then, um, one of the great tensions that we see then is leadership, especially in church, uh, is is leaders staying in shorter spurts in, in places in order to, find or gain or discover or build, uh, you know, something better than, than what they had at this other place. And so it's created, I think, a lot of turnover and turmoil because there's generally not a ton of relational depth that you can get in an 18-month to a three-year period as a leader. It takes time, right? It takes takes a lot of time. Rick would always say the grass is always greener where you water it. You, I'm sure you've heard Rick say that a bunch, right? Um, and so uh, I think this conversation of how do we get younger leaders to stay longer, to invest longer, uh, where they are is, is an important conversation. And so how, how do we transition them well um, into that next generation of leadership where they are?
1: Well, what I find is the greener grass is often of painted concrete. But from far away, it looks like green grass. Uh, However, I I push back a little bit maybe on that concept. Uh, When somebody is young and not married, because the moment you're married, you're no longer, you know, if you want to be all that you can be for Jesus, stay single, Paul says. Because the moment you get married, you have a divided mind. But if you're going to burn, go ahead and get married. I was going to burn. I got married. But the moment that happened, I had a wife to please and a Lord to please. And he says, I'm not and he says, you have not sinned by that divided mindset. Okay. Right. So I I really have no problem in the early days of of ministry and figuring out who I am. And in this culture, uh, that goes later into life than it has in past history. Uh, For people to be around a short time learning this, learning that. But at the point that say somebody is married, they're maybe having kids or whatever, that pursuit of, of of a bigger platform, more influence and all that, that'll kill them and that'll kill their family. Right. There's an early time where you're just trying things to see what you're good at. Uh, you're trying to things to see like, whoa, I thought I would be really happy over here, but no, I'm actually happy over here. That green grass is painted concrete. Uh, I can make this greener by water and all of that. I'm really comfortable with those shorter term commitments when they're up front on the front end. What I'm not comfortable with is a little later in life, late 20s, early 30s, uh, the moment that something doesn't go well, I'm going to run from it. Right. Mm. Okay, That that's mm. really more where the problem happens than a young leader who is getting, in fact, I think it can be damaging to a young leader to spend too much time in one cocoon situation because mm. you mm. tend to think that's a whole world. Uh, but you can't chase your dream to the harm of those God has called you to, to make a priority,
0: right? Yeah.
1: And so, for Nancy and I, 28 years old, we came to uh, uh, the North Coast area, and I married a woman who, who's deeply rooted, not so much uh, entrepreneurial like I am. You know, opposites attract. Her gifts are helps and mercy. Uh, and when two become one, it's not a battle to see which one; it's a new one. And God created in the two of us some a couple who said, "We're going to see if we can spend a lifetime in a community." Now, I don't put that on everybody, but it right. was because of who I married. It was that station in life, and it's why I didn't leave at the end of the three dark years. It's like, well, yeah. I guess I'm never going to fulfill my dream, but I need to fulfill my calling, not my potential.
2: Hmm. Hmm. That's, that's that's good. good. <laughs> that's well said. Um, how do we do it on the other side, Larry? What we're seeing in the, the domination we're kind of connected to um Ministers are staying in ministry longer. Um, People are just generally living longer. We had uh, Hayden Shaw, I don't know if you're familiar with Hayden, on the show early on. He's a generational expert. Just saying people are just generally living longer. So people are staying put in places longer. So pastors are staying now into their 70s, still pastoring. And one of the tensions we're we're dealing with here, uh, I had some conversations with some folks at the School of Religion recently here at Lee, that there's not space for young leaders to lead into. Um, Where 20 years ago, a pastor was retiring or even passing away by 60, opening more pulpits, opening more opportunities. How do we transition younger leaders into those spots?
1: Well, I think part of the problem is we think of the church as a 503C1 organization instead of, the church is an assembly of God's people. Uh, as I like to say about North Coast Church, we're just one elective Sunday school class in God's great church in Northern San Diego. And if we have that mindset, everything changes. If we think of ourselves as a church, then we start worrying about the longevity of our church. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I was at a, a an event a number of years ago, many years ago now, and when somebody said, well, how many of you care what your church is like 50 to hundred years from now. And every home, hand in the room went up, but mine, I go, I don't care. Uh, if, if North coast church folds, as long as all those people end up in another church in our community, we've won. So I, yeah. I think part of the angst that we're feeling is we don't understand the kingdom from a kingdom mindset. We understand it from a castle mindset.
0: Mm.
1: Starbucks doesn't care if I quit going to this one and go to that one. The manager does, but Starbucks doesn't. They don't even care if I go to Seattle's best because they own that too. Uh, and and what I find is everybody has a, a great heart for church planning and and all of this as long as it's overseas or more than thirty five minutes away. So the the real solution to people staying too long is starting other new churches and the people staying long not being upset that people leave. Yeah. Uh, it's like, that's okay. Uh, Now, I have a series of things that I I laid down in my, uh, when I was about 35, that said, do these things to keep North Coast from growing old, and they've helped us. And then the last two years, I'm not the lead pastor. You know, I'm still preaching a ton, and I'm still leading and all that, but we've turned over the mantle of managing partner to Chris Brown. And uh, so, he would be, you know, one, uh, and I'd be 1A or He'd be one A, I'd be one B. So, yeah, there's a time to do that. But more importantly, uh, the, if we think body of Christ, we'd be helping the churches near us. Uh, we literally helped a church find a facility across the street from one of our campuses. Well, and and on top of that, it's in my tribe. Yeah. Okay. But he's reaching different people than I do. I've got some good real estate people. Hey, let me help you out. Because if you think like old school Southern Baptist Sunday school model, adult Sunday school in a you know big church, nobody cared if they went from one elective to another. and nobody had angst that this group is all growing old because they were starting a new one over here. young marriage class, young couples class. you see where I'm going with that? Yeah and so I think the angst we're feeling right now is because we're starting out with the wrong mindset yeah we're worried about, uh, the continuation, or how full a room is, in a 503C1 local church, instead of yeah. asking how many people are in church in our community. That, that changes everything. Uh, it's why we uh, we blessed our college pastor, uh, does a great ministry, 600 collegians come. He wants to start a church that has a little more of a charismatic feel than our church does, you know, with Within our, I mean, he's been a great staff member. He's loved it. And uh, so we said, yeah, fine. He started a church a few miles from us. It's not a North Coast campus. It's going to be with another denomination. We gave him the same money we would have given him if it was one of ours and and blessed him because we got to think kingdom and we think castle. Kills us. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's good that's really good like so that. North Coast is undoubtedly one of the more innovative churches i think in in recent history um and so I know you guys have have done a lot of, a lot in terms of one of the first if not the first real multi site sort of movement churches uh, a lot of small group
1: yeah small well, group ministry we were the first to use video venues as a reward yes. in the life and not. We weren't, people think we were first multi-site. The bizarre thing is, yes, I started video venues as a solution to big buildings. Uh, my staff hated it. They thought I was crazy. Three weeks later, they loved it. Uh, I thought it was their idea. Uh, (laughs) but then they came to me once we got it going and said, we should do a multi-site. And I said, that'll never work. (laughs) 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 So after all the churches that were the first, like five or six to do it, came and saw our toy, went home and played with our toy their way. I decided they're having too much fun. We got to do it. Yeah, We were one of the first multi-sites. We were the first video venue, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah.
0: But you guys obviously are very innovative and, uh, I know what you do there. So from your perspective, uh, what are you seeing in terms of innovation? What's on the horizon for the church today? Like what are some areas that as I would say, not young, I'm not sure Jeff and I are quote young leaders anymore, but we're we're sort of middle middle leaders. Right. Um, But how are some ways that we can help um, foster and encourage and support Uh, the next generation of pastors that are coming up? What are some innovations that you see coming
1: that we need to be aware of? Well, there's there's two angles to that question. The first is, I believe it's the leader's responsibility to give freedom to the next generation to try things. Mm. So uh, Barnabas has always been my hero. At North Coast, it's been my job to find a way to say yes to the young and crazy ideas people want as worship styles change to find a way to say yes, rather than hold it back as, as graphic interfaces change and go from one kind of style to another to look for a way to say yes. As I mean, there's just a million ways where instead of saying, well, you'll understand later, uh, like most older leaders do, starting around middle age, uh, say even very early forties, the job is to say, find a way to say yes, be Barnabas to Paul. Uh, they want to try something crazy. You have, you have the chips to be able to be the icebreaker for them. And I believe that's how a church stays younger. We've worked really hard at that. I did that very well. Chris Brown continues to do that. And I continue to do that to this day uh, at our church. Our third preacher on our team started when he was 25, you know, and he's 30 today and, uh, just phenomenally gifted guy. So, so that's part of it. As far as the innovations that are coming, no one can see the future. All you gotta do is get all the books that we're reading right now that talk about millennial generation and Z and all this, where they're gonna go, and see what the earlier books, how right they were about generation X, about you know, right. Y, or, you <laughs> name, say we're all wrong. No one can see the future. What we can see is the unchangeable present. It's what Peter Drucker, the management guru, saw when he predicted yep. 20 years ahead of time the social safety net in Europe is gonna collapse and there's gonna be major immigration issues. What he saw was the unchangeable present and it was zero birth rates. So what are the unchangeable presents that are influencing us right now that 10 to 15 years from now, we better fully embrace or we're dead mate? Um, One of them is we live in a tribal culture, created by choice. We used to be, we're always tribal. We always have had echo chambers, but they used to be geographic echo chambers. If you lived in the Southeast, you saw the world one way very different than if you lived in the Northeast. Uh, Nowadays, you can live next door to each other because you listen to Fox News or MSNBC, or this is what's on your playlist, and this is what's on my playlist. You're a youth pastor. There's no youth music anymore because everybody, due to choice, has created their own channel, right? You with me on this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well that's not going backwards. We all hate the echo chambers and the fact that nobody talks, the political polarization is not Trump, it's not Obama, it's not the next thing. It's the echo chambers we live in, where we all think everybody else is stupid uh, because we're only listening to ourselves. The reason I say that's not gonna change because all of us who hate the fruit of the echo chamber, don't want to go back to a day and age of 2 a.m. radio stations and three networks. I haven't found one person who's willing to give up their ability to live in their chosen little tribe. Right. So I don't see, that's not going to change. So what are we doing in our ministries to think that through? By the way, that's one reason we need to work together more than ever. That's why we need to help that church of my own tribe find a campus across the street from one of our campuses. That's why tomorrow I'll be meeting, I've got about 52 San Diego pastors of all kinds of different tribes every six weeks from uh, 1030 to 12. What do you want to talk about? And it's our job to pour into them and make them successful. A uh, 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 second thing is time shifting. Uh, my 92-year-old dad and mom, they, they time shift every show they watch. Nobody, you know, you'll, you'll hear a commercial, tune into the news at, you know, 6 and 10. Nobody does. You already knew the news. You saw the YouTube clip. Yeah, but yeah. we say, yeah. hey, good news is come Sunday at 9 and 11. And we're living in a culture, go, excuse me, I can't time shift this thing. Uh, uh, excuse me, I can't have it when I want. Uh, 25% of people work Sundays. And, and, and we build our churches all around two time slots on Sunday. It's crazy. Uh, a third one that's unchangeable is the rise of the club program, traveling squads, winner on the championship games, Sunday. If we're going to say we only do this thing on Sunday, then we've got a whole group of young families that are not going to be in our churches five to 10 years from now. You've all heard the statistics that people go to church less often than they used to. Only one out of once a month instead of twice a month, that kind of. Well, I've heard that forever and I just shake my head because nobody's telling us why. It's quite simple. Yeah. Why? In a good economy, people get away for the weekend. And with the rise of club programs, some massive numbers in them, they're gone at tournaments. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I can rail against that and I'm preaching to the choir. Or I can figure a way to have a Thursday night service, a way to have a Sunday night service, a way to have a Saturday night service. Instead of building bigger buildings, have more opportunities. Mm-hmm. All things to all people, I might reach some. So those yes, are exactly. the innovations I think that the, the new churches that are being formed are are going to make. And I'm already seeing that with some of the groups I work with and coach.
2: So what are some of those examples? You mentioned a a Thursday night service or you're just kind of maybe spitballing. But what are what are some churches doing to um, respond to these things, to the club programs, to time shifting? What are some of the things that we're already seeing take place?
1: Well, first of all, we've got to uh, switch uh, our online services. Uh, We used to see them as there's bricks and mortar church and online church. So we' your your MC then would get on and say, "Hey, online North Coast we're glad you're here or whatever like it's a different group. Well the reality most of the people watching that are people that miss that Sunday and want to pick it up. It's one of the reasons mm-hmm. by the way we do sermon based small groups because that drives you to rehear the sermon you missed and if discipleship is about the next step of obedience, the teaching component' a very important part of you know uh. It's not the feeling part it's the content part that's changing your life, not that the feeling part is unimportant it's very important um, so that would be one of them uh, is 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 realize that we live in a world where bricks and mortar and or online are options and we're treating them like they're not or they're secondary or let's get them let's get them out of that uh Building smaller buildings. Every time we launch a campus, we want to start with two services and get to four as soon as possible. It's it's a new day. We don't dream of building a building where we can have everybody all together at once. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's a practical thing. The Thursday night I'm seeing just uh, exploding where you have really good communicators and they've decided uh, that they're not going to build that big building. Uh, I see that over and over. Um so those those are a few of them again i don't like to rail against culture i can't win i meet right. people in culture and bring them to jesus if i if if i make them have a, a mature christian viewpoint before they can hear the gospel i've got this thing backwards that's why i call it accidental pharisee i think i've helped out god but i'm not
0: yeah okay so uh you you make this statement um Uh, discipleship without leadership is a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. So uh, unpack that for us a little bit.
1: (laughs) Well, that has to do with my, my publishers hate the fact that they go, Larry, people don't know your brand. Uh, Are you writing mystery novels or cookbooks? Yeah, (laughs) I'm sorry, I'll write on leadership. But uh, uh, leadership, if, if we don't have discipleship is a waste of time. And discipleship without leadership is a pipe dream because we don't know how to move beyond the ought to. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: So there's, a, there's a lot of books out there and there's a lot of conference speakers that what they do is they motivate us to feel really bad about we are where we are and get determined to go somewhere else. But at the end of the day, all we do is sign up for the gym membership without showing up. Yeah.
0: Right? yeah.
1: If, so if all I'm trying to do is make people feel bad, you're spiritually out of shape and get committed to sign up for the gym membership, and nobody's organized enough to figure out, are people showing up? Are are the workouts too hard, too easy? Uh, mm. I, I find, frankly, most churches around three or four hundred stop counting faces and stories and just count numbers. Uh, wow. All kinds of small group ministries out there, you realize that's a history. One of our gripes about the small groups nationally is how many count how many people signed up but don't count how many people show up Mm. like for instance the numbers we use our benchmark is october after the september enthusiasm and we're finding out what percent of october attendance is in groups in october right because i I mean i can have over a hundred percent if i count september signups uh but like okay I'm not a gym membership making money on you signing up and not showing up.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah. We're,
1: we're, we're, we're trying to disciple people. Uh, and it's, it's about real disciples, not the crowd. Yeah. And, and
2: speak to that a little bit and we can't make blanket statements about the church at large, but, um, and I'll just say, I, I feel, and from my perspective, that discipleship has taken a backseat in a lot of ways to to the Sunday morning experience rather than complementing it. How do we move back to a an attitude or heart of discipleship in the church?
1: Well, first thing we have to do is is we have to get rid of our modern day definition of discipleship. Uh, what's really popular uh, and most definition it has it has nothing to do with the biblical definition. Uh there are two rails uh, the church runs on, Church Universal and Church, church Local, two rails. And one is a uh, leadership pipeline, leadership development, and the other is discipleship. And we've turned them into a monorail. Hmm. And if you listen closely, we think the top ladder, the top rung on the ladder of discipleship is to be a leader. And the absolute top is vocational ministry. And discipleship has nothing to do with becoming a leader. Uh our favorite discipleship verse is what 2 Timothy 2:22 uh you know uh, well we we forget uh i mean help me out just rhetorically answer my questions uh uh the book was written to who Duh. Timothy, Timothy right yeah. uh what was Timothy's role he's a pastor what do we call first second first second Timothy and Titus pastoral epistles <laughs> why they were he written is to him. a pastor and yeah. we make them written to a preschool mom. And we want to know who are you pouring into that was written to Timothy saying, you need to find faithful men and pour into them. Like I poured into you Silas, Epaphrodites and all that who will pour in. It's a leadership pipeline verse. Mm.
0: And mm-hmm.
1: so we've got everybody feeling guilty if they don't have an upline and downline, like it's multi-level marketing. <laughs> <laughs> so so as long as we define a disciple as a special ops christian yeah. we're gonna have problems in our churches um, yeah. okay that's not that's not what a discipleship is the greek word mathetes means follower and the bible uses it of joseph of arimathea a prominent member of the sanhedrin who laid in the weeds when jesus was called a blasphemer and then suddenly got the courage after he died on the cross to go take his body. He wasn't called a disciple after he stepped forward. Twice in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accounts, the Bibles, as he was a disciple, John tells us he was a secret disciple because he feared his fellow Jews. Mm-hmm. We in our discipleship teaching today would say, you're not even a Christian. I would call him a disciple, admittedly, a sucky disciple. you know loser but if the bible calls him a disciple my definition can't be people who are leaders and superstars and i believe that's what's killed real biblical discipleship in our churches because discipleship is mandatory for everybody and it's about the next step of obedience Uh, all the way to the apostle paul writing bible saying man i've not yet arrived uh, if you have a discipleship pastor in a church today, he or she is probably trying to find Christians and make them better Christians. Would you agree?
2: Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right?
1: Well, I don't think that's what the apostles heard when Jesus said, Go out in the world and make disciples. It was find people who aren't followers and make them followers and don't let go until they are obeying everything I taught. Yeah. So. To me, to get back to the roots of, of, of the biblical discipleship, we're going to be teaching much more about, emo, uh, about obedience than emotion. Hmm. We're going to realize everybody has the next step of obedience. We're going to call, uh, tell our leaders quit being arrogant when you look down on non-leaders because you think you're more committed. No, you're just called different, right? So what happens, we take these two rails, we turn them into a monorail, the train tips over. When it tips over on one side, you got arrogant leaders who look down on non-leaders who won't sacrifice enough. When you get the other side, you get despairing Christians who think they're not good enough because their gifts are helps and mercy, and they can't lead their way out of a paper bag. And when they're questioned about their faith, they don't think well on their feet, so they must be a loser. I mean, it's just crazy what we've done. And we've created, created, frankly, a very arrogant church. Um, Wow. So... My concept is you do both at North coast. We are great at producing leaders, but we don't try to make everybody a leader. Mm. We want to be a church for Monday where we make you a better school teacher, a better CEO, a better, whatever it would be on assignment for Jesus there. And you're really okay if you don't think well in your feet and know all the apologetic answers. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's called gift projection. We project our gifts on everybody else. Right. Um,
0: so we're really good, especially culturally, um, picking apart things that we don't do well. Um, I have a high ecclesiology just like you do. I don't like talking bad about the church. Uh, you know, we have to be honest with what it is and assess what it is and, and call those things as what they are. But I think we're also doing a really good job in winning some, in some ways as well. And so, um, being on a college campus, uh, you know, one of the most exciting things for me is just seeing what God is doing in the lives of college students. And so for for you guys, I mean, uh, what are some ways that you see us winning in this discipleship conversation?
1: Well, I'm excited about the future of the church, contrary to what, you know, it's always popular to rip on the next generation or the current right. situation. Uh, ironically, you know, the we, we've got census stuff now where there's less people identifying as Christians. They call themselves nuns, o n e s. Well, I happen to like that because they're finally being honest. It's not we're losing ground. We're just being honest. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and so at the end of the day, church attendance is actually about the same percentage it's been historically. Uh, I have the privilege. I'm, a lot of my focus is on young pastors. And I come home often and tell my wife, we've had a pretty good run, but their future is better than our past.
0: Mm, uh, yeah. I
1: think the church is in really good hands. Uh, I, I find a passion today for the word. Uh, As we get more and more that there is no objective truth, the truth of objective truth jumps out at people. Uh, I find there's a lot of passion. And and sure, in that passion, there's some arrogance of youth and the mistakes of youth. It has always been there and will always be there. Um, I I just think what we need to do is, again, find ways to say yes. Find ways to say, how can I give you a platform to try this out? uh and and boundaries and a, a safety net underneath you if you fall off the tightrope, it's like uh, i'm i tend to be actually pretty encouraged yeah me that's, too that's good yeah there, there's water me. in the glass you know yes. say, oh, There is. <laughs> <took> the water <laughs> yeah, out of is. glass i tend to go that is yeah. amazing there's water in that glass <laughs> and, and Larry yeah. you're you're
2: echoing some things we've heard from other guests about especially the nuns thing that it's Really just people being honest at this point, that there was never an option to say they didn't believe in anything. And now they're just getting the opportunity in these surveys to be honest about where they stand, which is good. because I think
1: cultural Christianity kills us. I love where I live in San Diego. We're in we're in Europe. It's post-Christian. Yes. So say we run on a weekend about 13,000 and on Easter we jump to 18,000. That's like nothing because there's no, the, all that means is everybody goes to North coast shows up that week. Uh, yeah. Same with Christmas stuff and all that. The reality is that unless we program out the kazoo, there is no, there are no more CE Christians out where I live. Christmas, Christmas and Easter. I find yeah. that good because as long as they think they're a Christian, but they don't live like one, I got a problem convincing them, they're not a Christian.
2: That's, that you know, is good. An area where
1: they're quick to say, eh, Go, we we great. may
2: live in the opposite. I mean, yeah, we, yeah. we live in a, in a vacuum of faith. I think sometimes where, where the professing of faith is very uh, convenient in the community we're in and it's not a knock on our community, just very, it, it is. Um, so, so how do we, and, and we'll kind of wrap this whole discipleship conversation around the great commission, which you've done the whole time. How do we reach those people then? Like there's no more cultural Christianity. That's, that's fading quickly. What do we do to really carry out the Great Commission into those spaces?
1: Well, I, I think a couple of things. First of all, you are heading where we are. The entire nation is moving in that. It's just a matter of right. who's going to get yeah, there quickest in a 15, 20 year period. We're all going to be there. Uh, but I, I think the Great Commission is instead of trying to make them feel guilty, let's just call them to the next step of obedience. Uh, uh, I think we, again, that's why I wrote Accidental Pharisees. We mean well, but we accidentally sabotage the work of the Lord.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: And I think one of the things we do when we have cultural Christianity and what we like to call consumer Christians is we get mad at them and we tell them if they don't suddenly become special ops, we're all over. You know, you're unworthy. Well, that's real motivating. Take the next step. I did not. I do not find Jesus doing that. Think about who Jesus hung around with sinners, right? And we all think that's really cool. Sure. Well, wait a minute. Who were the sinners he hung around with? They weren't child sacrificing Moabites. That's kind of what we, you know, like yeah. today. If I hang around with sinners, and the bigger the sin, the more I can brag about it. It's like no, they were Jews who knew better. But thought, because I'm at least not a child-sacrificing Moabite, it's okay that I don't live in obedience. Right. Mm. That sounds like the people you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. And Jesus met them where they were and called them to their next step of obedience. He didn't rail on them. Yeah. The more we have our special ops over here, railing on the Joseph of Arimathea's over here, we're not going to see any change in them. Mm. Wow. You know? Uh, Jesus loved the lost sheep of Israel. Here's what we love. We love lost people, baby Christians who still swear in their prayers. How cute is that? (laughs) And on fire special ops Christians. Mm. And we've lost our heart for the struggling, Mm. the hurting, the not yet ready. That's exactly who the Pharisees were upset Jesus hung around. Yikes! Yeah, it's a good word. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Larry, we are uh, unfortunately out of time, and uh, certainly won't be respectful of yours. And we always ask this final question to all of our guests, and uh, it can be silly, it can be completely obnoxious, it can be totally serious, whatever your your preference is, or all of the above. But uh, one of the things we love to ask all of our guests is, "What is one lesson you learned in college?" that did not actually take place in the classroom?
1: <laughs> Pretty much everything that was of value didn't take place in the classroom. <laughs> That's not encouraging. That's not <laughs> <good>. uh, <laughs> I, I was I was thankful for the classroom data, uh, but I, I would often take professors out, out to lunch, and I consistently learned far more uh, taking them mm-hmm. out to lunch mm-hmm. than I ever learned in their classroom. Uh, so so to me, I was a, a commuter in college because uh, I didn't have the money to live on campus. Uh, and so uh, at that point, I didn't learn a lot of the stuff, you know, hanging around with other students and all that because I had to get to work. And a couple days off, I did some ministry things. Uh, but uh, just getting out of a classroom environment and asking people what their life schedules were, why they did what yeah. they did. Those were the things that I think made the biggest difference in my life. Yeah. Awesome.
2: Wow. This has just been leadership gold, Larry. We are so thankful for you spending some time with us. How can our listeners stay connected to you?
1: Well, uh, one way is uh, they can check out the uh, uh, North coast training network. I think you just need to Google that. I don't remember exactly where org, but is it nctraining.org or, but uh, the North Coast Training Network uh, is a a really good way or Larry Osborne Live that has some stuff from me. It's not really live. I don't blog or podcast on a regular basis, but it's a connect point. Uh, But if they checked out uh, North Coast Training uh, Network, you could get a a lot of the stuff. We tend to focus on more personalized things Mm -hmm. because there's a whole lot of people out there are doing the mass stuff really well. Why try to duplicate that? Very good. So we have workshops awesome. limited to like 25 people and stuff like that. Well, awesome.
2: Count us in. We'd like to come out to San Diego. I guess you'd be I'll going be there back in February. I'm actually
0: coming back out in February. So come uh, down. and I'm going to hide this luggage, I think. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> awesome. Hey, Larry, thank you again so thank much for so being much. on the show. God bless you. And uh, man, we appreciate you praying for you guys out in San Diego. Take care. And we hope to talk to you soon. As we okay, always say
2: great. here at the Collectives Co. podcast, Larry, you have a seat at the table. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Collectivist Code podcast. Would you do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review, and share this on social media so this content can reach other great leaders?